welcome to the Medical Protection Podcast. This is the Case File Series and I am your host, Dr. Ellen Walsh. Today, I'm joined by fellow host who will be a familiar voice for our regular listeners, Jalen Simsek. Jalen is joining us from London, where she is a case manager. Jalen, thank you for joining me this morning. Thank you so much for having me, Ellen. So Jalen, I came across this case. It's based on a real case, but it's been anonymized to protect the identity of everybody involved. It's a very unfortunate one for the patient, family and all of the doctors. And for me, it really does illustrate the gravity of diagnostic errors. Jalen, I know you're familiar with this case, so could you share a brief summary of what happened? Yeah, absolutely. So I was involved in a case with a number of colleagues where an eight-year-old boy was referred to the accident and emergency department by his general practitioner with a three-month history of headaches and possible blurred optic disc margins. Our member, a junior doctor, assessed him in the accident and emergency, noting the absence of red flag signs and thought that fundoscopy was normal. Following a discussion with her consultant, the patient was admitted overnight for observation and she noted the following in his medical records. Discussed with consultant, review normal discs, observe overnight. The following morning, the consultant reviewed him and diagnosed migraine. He was discharged home and was due to be seen in the outpatient department in the following month. However, as his headaches had improved, he didn't actually attend the appointment. Two months later, his GP referred him back to the A&E with severe headaches and vomiting. A paediatric consultant reviewed the patient this time and noted that he now had headaches every single day. A CT scan was performed which showed an intracranial tumour which was treated with surgery and radiotherapy. A claim was subsequently brought and it was alleged that the junior doctor didn't actually examine the patient properly. She was obviously devastated by the claim and the fact that the patient had been left with some disability after the treatment. Now I won't go into more detail as we will be hearing more about it soon. Thank you so much for sharing that, Jalen. Now, before we explore this in a little more detail, I'd like to share a dramatisation of what might have been like for the junior doctor involved. I saw Jack when he first came to ED with a letter from his GP about his headaches. I examined him and really found nothing of concern. I know the GP's letter talked about red discs with blurred margins, but really, I couldn't see that. I wish I had been able to. I rang the consultant paediatrician and they agreed to admit Jack overnight. I can't remember now what I said to him, but I wrote review normal discs so that someone else would review it and see if they were okay or not. I was... I was devastated. I found out months later that Jack had been operated on for an intracranial mass. My first thought was, why hadn't this been picked up on? And then, why was I the one being blamed? I mean, I felt terrible for Jack, but at the same time, it all seemed kind of unfair. It was really hard. It affected me a lot. I I couldn't sleep well. I couldn't concentrate. Totally lost my confidence. For me, that short clip is really striking. It helps to show the effect that errors have on the healthcare staff that are involved. We know that healthcare staff work in very difficult circumstances and that medicine is never black and white. And errors will always happen no matter how hard people try. And those errors are not always life-threatening, but they can be life-changing. 
and they can really compromise a patient's quality of life. And that can be very hard for the healthcare staff that have been involved. And we can hear that from that poor junior doctor. It's not uncommon for the healthcare staff to suffer adverse effects from errors. And the problem is that an awful lot of people in medicine, nurses, doctors, other healthcare staff just feel like they have to carry on and get the job done. And that stress and anxiety that they can feel can be really difficult and impact them in a lot of different ways. And I often hear my members that I offer support to saying that it affects their personal life, their confidence, their ability to do their job, and it even spills over into their home life. So, Jalen, I wonder, what do members say to you about the effect that being involved in an error can have on them? Yeah, absolutely. So our members or the members that I come across tend to struggle in two aspects. So one is professional, the other is personal. Within their professional lives, they tend to hesitate when making a diagnosis. Um, With that hesitation, it can reflect on the way they approach each individual patient. And the patient can also see this as well. The other way professionally is sometimes they're not able to make confident decisions, which is a vital skill in having the confidence in your knowledge, but also your decision making uh, to prevent reoccurrence. That can have a trickling down effect onto how they approach each case. The other is, as you've said, personal. And as we've heard in the recording, um, it can have impact on their sleep. It can have an impact on their appetite, their mental health and ability to concentrate generally in their personal lives. Yeah, I see that a lot as well with the members that I um, support when they when they talk to me about being involved in errors. And they'll say to me that they have started to practice very defensively. They no longer trust their judgment. They've lost their confidence and that they've started to over-investigate and over-treat. And that can be really difficult because for me, when I talk to them, I can see that they can't get past looking at the error. And it's really important, and I'm sure you um, have these discussions too with your members, Jalen, that they learn from those incidents, that they're able to look at their mistakes and the near misses. And what advice do you give to your members about how to learn from those errors that they've been involved in? Yeah, one advice I would give is to realise that this is not something to be ashamed of or embarrassed of. Making an error is human. It's quite normal. And it's something that we can all learn and develop from. Um, So that's a good thing. By learning, they can certainly actually take uh, self-development courses, but also they can do that by identifying what error occurred. By identifying the error, they're able to pick out what areas of development they absolutely need. The other advice I would give is having a discussion with a senior. So somebody they trust, confide in their educator or consultant and talking through the incident with them um, to see how best they can learn from this. I would suggest not avoiding having those difficult conversations. Absolutely. I mean, you've highlighted there the importance for the individual doctor or nurse to look at what went wrong and what they can do to learn from that. But do you think it's just the doctor or the nurse that needs to be looking at this? Do you think it's just the individual? Um, No, it's at the same time, it's also the hospitals or the systems that they work under, um, as well as the consultants. So uh, their colleagues, consultants can see how best they can support these, the hospitals or 
can also look to see how best they can um, they can provide educational development to junior doctors for them to feel best supported in these difficult environments. Yeah, so there is an individual thing and there is an organisational piece as well. And do you think that the organisation, um, how they approach their investigations in terms of whether they're supporting their doctors or looking to blame their doctors, whether that impacts how the doctor can reflect and learn on the error? So actually how I think one of the consistent feelings that junior doctors go through is uh, that they feel they will be repercussions to being honest and to actually uh, discussing these um, errors with their organizations. One of the things that the organizations can do is to adopt a no blame culture. So that is by uh, avoiding blaming anyone when a mistake has been made, but rather seeing what systems can be best placed to prevent these recurring again. Absolutely. And we see that a lot in the literature. They talk a lot about now moving to a just culture where it's looking at how you could support the healthcare staff and not blaming them as individuals, but looking to learn and reflect and embed that within the organisation. But one of the things that really struck me from the clip we heard earlier on was just how impacted our our member was that poor junior doctor, how impacted they were by the error and how they felt that they were being blamed and it wasn't fair. So they were clearly struggling with the distress of all of this. I often talk to my members who are going through a difficult time about the support that's there through their organisation and through MPS in terms of counselling services, because not all my members feel able to talk to their colleagues or to their consultants because they feel that people will judge them. And sometimes they would feel more comfortable talking to qualified counsellors who are not um, working with them day to day. So it's entirely confidential. And most organisations now will have um, employee assistance programmes and counsellors available through that. And for those that want to, medical protection also have um, counselling services. Um, and for those who are more affected and are struggling more, I will always talk to them about talking to their GP and even talking to the occupational health physicians in their organisation. So there is a lot of support out there. People aren't always aware of it. So those are the other um, support networks that I'll signpost my members to if they're struggling. One of the things that um, I thought about when I was listening to this uh, case clip at the start, the junior doctor's record keeping in this case wasn't very good. And when they talked through the documentation, her medical records were very ambiguous. So it was very hard for her when she went back seven months later and the claim came for her to remember exactly what happened. And do you see that in your cases that medical record keeping can be poor and ambiguous? It's actually quite an, a common situation where we see uh, an ambiguous um, note, note keeping. And all what, what do we mean by good medical record keeping? Essentially, when you are keeping medical records, it should be well documented. It should be easy to understand and detailed and clear um, to ensure that continuity of care between yourself and any other healthcare professional that picks up. It should also be um, 
accurate and comprehensive. Um, and that would be a good foundation to have uh, when you are keeping your medical records on a daily practice. Absolutely. When I'm talking to members about the purpose of medical records, I always tell them it's important for continuity of care, but also from a medical legal point of view. And I think a lot of people will know the old adage, if it's not written down, it didn't happen. And while that's not always the case, it certainly makes it easier when you're involved in a complaint or a claim, if you have good, clear, thorough documentation. Um, and it is, like in this case, much more difficult after several months or even several years to try and piece together what happened the other thing I'd like to talk about in this case is the poor communication that seems to have arisen between the junior doctor and her consultant. And I see this in nearly every case in some form or guise. Do you see, it, uh, Jalen, do you see communication difficulties causing problems for your members? Um, and communication can be uh, both verbal and written. So with written, as we've previously mentioned, it can be good medical record keeping and handover notes. The uh, verbal communication uh, is quite uh, it's quite difficult to pinpoint where exactly the issue has occurred. Um, but communication doesn't necessarily mean just in terms of handover. It can also mean discussing the case with a consultant and approaching a consultant during your decision making or just having that simple approach between colleagues to colleagues um, to discuss or prevent adverse patient outcomes. The thing that struck me here was that there was probably a barrier to that communication because the junior doctor had a clear plan. She wanted her consultant to review the patient and decide whether there was any clinical signs that the junior doctor may not have picked up on. But there was clearly a barrier to communication. And for me, that often is around the junior doctor being afraid to speak up. There's a fear of authority, uh, worrying about what other people would think, what the consultant will think. So do you see any common barriers to speaking up when you speak to your members about cases that they've been involved in? Mm -hmm. um, I think some of the barriers that come with speaking up can be both personal, it can also be environmental. So personally, sometimes self-doubt and not having belief in your ability or your confidence to discuss it and ask the right questions um, can be a barrier. And the, the other part is the environmental. So having the right individuals to approach to, um, but also within their department and team, whether they're able to communicate um, appropriately what they are uh, thinking or struggling about in a certain case or, or a multitude of cases. And absolutely, I see that too with my members when I talk to them. Um, it really is the, the leader, the consultant who sets the tone for the communication within the team. Um, and when I um, unpick it, it's often the body language um, that the consultant uses, uh, the tone of voice that they use, that demonstrates whether they are open to having clear communication or not. And communication is a really personal thing. It's very difficult to describe to somebody what is happening because it's such a personal thing and it's how you treat people during the day, whether you're making yourself available and approachable. And really that for me is what encourages people to speak up or disempowers them so they don't feel that they're able to. 
So there are a lot of barriers um, to communication in every walk of life. So just to wrap this up, Jalen, what would be your top three tips that you would like our listeners to take away from this podcast today? As we've seen in this case and in uh, both of our professional experience, communication in terms of medical record keeping as well as verbal communication. So that's one thing that I would highly suggest for them to um, improve on. Medical protection also has a lot of resources that they can um, read into on medical record keeping. The other would be on uh, discussing with uh, with their consultants or their occupational health um, when they are struggling. And as we've mentioned, not being embarrassed or ashamed. Perfect. That's great advice and some great top tips for our listeners. Thank you very much for joining me today, Jalen. Thanks, Ellen. And with that, we reach the end of today's podcast, Facing Errors and Learning From Them. Don't forget, if you're a member of Medical Protection, we have complimentary training available on the topic of medical records. Take a look in the podcast description below for links to this and a certificate for listening. I've been your host, Dr. Ellen Walsh. Thank you for listening.